You're listening to TIP. This book airs much more on the side of entrepreneurs, technologists, builders. It's a little more of a like a handbook to like go get out there, you know, get to work and a little less philosophical. But I think they go together really well. Hey guys, in this week's episode, I had the chance to sit down with Eric Jorgensen to talk not only about his recently released book called The Anthology of Balaji, but we also touch on some of his key learnings from the writings of the Almanac of Naval Ravikant, how to build the future according to Balaji, Balaji's Bitcoin bet, and what Eric's new role at Scribe Media will be and how it came about. Eric is the author of the Almanac of Naval Ravikant and the Anthology of Balaji. He is the host of the Smart Friends podcast and is an investor in early stage tech startups. His business blog, Evergreen, educates and entertains more than 1 million readers. Eric recently became the CEO of Scribe Media. I'm a huge fan of both Naval and the Balaji book, so getting the chance to talk ideas with Eric was a blast, and I hope you guys get a lot of value from this one. And so, without further delay, let's dive into this week's episode with Eric Jorgensen. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And joining me today is a super special guest I am jazzed to have on the show, Eric Jorgensen. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Like I said, pleasure to have you on today. I'm a huge fan of definitely the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. It's made a huge impact on me. It's probably one of the two books that I go back and reread pretty frequently. The other one is Richer, Wiser, Happier by William Green. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but that's very similar. He interviews a lot of incredible investors in his book. But Naval's book that you wrote or put together has, like I said, made a huge impact. You've got one on Balaji, which we are going to get into. But before we dive into any of those, their ideas, I wanted to hear first more about you. I wanted to hear like, I've heard both of them say that they have a tough time describing what they do. And I've found this recently for myself too. It's like, I don't know how to explain what I do. You know, there's a lot of different things. So let's say you and I are sitting next to each other. We're flying out to San Francisco. It's a three hour flight, something like that. And I'm really interested in you. How do you describe yourself? Tell me a little bit about how you're describing yourself these days, because you've got some changes happening in your life, which we'll go into, but tell me about like what you say. Yeah, I used to be a little self-conscious about the fact that what I did was hard to explain, but I've come to see that it's a pretty good sign of being on a frontier of some kind of craft or some sort of knowledge. So probably six months ago, I would say I write books, I invest in high-tech startups, and I podcast. As of recently, I've added like a slightly more legible title, which is uh, CEO of Scribe Media, which is a whole story we can get into if you want. It's overlaps slightly with kind of the books part of my life and intertwines, interestingly. But the way I think of it is just trying to understand how the world works and what kind of efforts can make the future better. And I pursue that in a wide variety of ways, depending on sort of what I'm interested in and what the opportunities present themselves. So we're going to get into Scribe. We're going to get into your podcast, which is Smart Friends. But you also said you describe yourself as a journalist or author. What would you say? Author, I think. But I think the delineation you made of I build these books, really, I don't necessarily write them. So I'm never sure what kind of verb to use, but I, I do go with author on the book publishing side of things. 
And then you're doing some investing. I've also heard you say, I think the term was like creator capitalist. Is that correct? Would you ever use that term? I don't know if I would describe myself that way, but I, I used it to try to understand the sort of whole movement of people that are both creators and investors in particular. And I think, you know, Jason Kalkanis and a prior version of Tim Ferriss and Patrick O'Shaughnessy and to some extent, Brent Bishore, like the mixture of people kind of mixing Chris Powers, for sure, who I know you've had on this podcast. I see it in a ton of different industries, but the mix of building a media business, not just a function and building like a finance business or a fund or a holding company or something. There's, I just see huge synergies between the two of those. And Creator Capitalist was just a blog post I wrote kind of trying to like tease out the similarities and see the overlaps and see why that was such a powerful model. So I certainly don't belong on that list at my scale, I don't think, but I'm like, I've got a great podcast and a small early stage venture fund, both of which I love and talk to founders and scientists and writers and futurists and invest in some of those companies that are working hard to kind of build this you know, techno utopian future that I see possible. And I just have a ton of fun with, with all of it, really. So you went to Michigan State. Did you know like in college that you wanted to get into tech and, you know, out to Silicon Valley and hang out with some of these amazing people? For sure. My family and I consider myself like incredibly grateful and lucky to have grown up in a, a very entrepreneurial family. Like I'm at least a third generation entrepreneur, like fourth, if you count farming, which I think you should. And so I, we grew up talking about trying to make payroll at the dinner table. You know, that was normal. So I, I feel very lucky to have kind of always had my eyes on that as a career path. And even as a kid, I was getting paid to give like sell candy out of my locker and like give kids rides to school and stuff like that. So I always wanted to be in business. And as I was in college, that's when sort of Facebook started to get really big and you saw really young people achieve incredible things in technology and it moved fast and it had an impact and it, it became really like sexy in that kind of era. And so I was like, oh, okay, not just entrepreneurship, but like tech entrepreneurship. And actually took this book, like the, the anthology of biology and working on it to more deeply understand the moral good of technology. I was always like, oh, cool. Like that's where young people can have a huge impact right away. That's where I want to work. And I thought technology was cool in the like, oh, this makes Star Wars real like sense. But I now understand a little more about how deeply critical it is to the future of our like happy civilization and living good lives and getting along and being safe and well-fed and comfortable and being able to be generous with each other, like the value that we all get from technology of today and the technologies of the past that we now completely take for granted. I just find it so magnificent and such a moral good that I'm like even more deeply enthralled with it than I was when I just thought it was cool. Like that's one of the key things that sort of studying biology has shown me. So what did you study in undergrad at Michigan State? My plan, which did not come to fruition, was to do three different degrees in five years, which was like business econ and this kind of bizarre independent study program that they had that was really cool. That kind of all went out the window when I got an internship at this tech startup that I just never went back to school for my last year. So that I kind of like haggled myself over the finish line to like get a degree in a bizarre sort of generic thing. So like I technically did graduate, but like I just left school at one point and never really went back. Like didn't go to my graduation ceremony, 
never finished a specific course of study, but I went to a broad set of different classes kind of along the way and just spent most of my time actually in college, like trying to start different companies, like typical college kid companies, none of which were particularly successful and meeting other entrepreneurs, helping them started a student business incubator at Michigan State that's still going called The Hatch and just tried to make a lot of friends among the kind of the community in East Lansing, which is very awesome and supportive. And it ended up being a good education, though nothing on per sort of would have like indicated that I was like destined for anything in particular, really. So I want to hear about how the books came about. I know with Naval, I believe you did a tweet and it kind of blew up and you had like 5,000 DMs or 5,000 you know responses to it. And he signed on for the book and kind of encouraged you to do it. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about how the Naval book came about, but then also similarly, like how the Balaji book came about for him to sign on. Signing on is probably a strong term. Like this, this is not like an incredible like agreement on paper anywhere. Yeah, the Naval book was like I was kind of between side projects, and I had been following him for ten years, and I absolutely fell in love with this interview he did on the Knowledge Project, which is Shane Parrish's incredible podcast. It was a great interview. I probably listened to it three times over the course of two weeks, and there's so many ideas in there that I was just like, this is absolutely timeless, incredible wisdom, man. This is like, I want everybody I know to read this. This something in this podcast could benefit everybody on the planet. And podcasting is like this kind of weird subculture. Like I still love it to death. It's growing like crazy, but it's, it is nowhere near the cultural influence that books have or the sort of global access that, that books have. And it occurred to me that all of this value that Naval had created in basically on Twitter and in podcasts was these very like ephemeral mediums, right? Like it was going to slide into dust, digital dust before too long. And I really wanted to preserve that and capture it. So I came up with a terrible name title, like that was just a pun, the book of knowledge and a little like survey and tweeted it and went to bed and woke up to find, yeah, 5,000 people had responded and Naval had retweeted it, which is why, and responded with, you know, happy to support, provide whatever you need, go for it. And that went from me thinking like, oh, cool, I'll, I'll spend, you know, a few weeks or a few months like assembling his best ideas into like a little PDF that I'll put on the website into like, oh my God, I'm writing Poor Charlie's Almanac for Naval. And <laughs> so I spent three years, like meticulously categorizing every good idea Naval had ever shared in public. And my first version of the manuscript was like 600 pages, which I was fascinated by every page, but I shared it with some friends and they were like, I got to be honest, I didn't read the whole thing. Like, okay, got it, got it, got it. We'll do some editing. So it, it just kind of pared it down to what I thought was the most widely applicable, most evergreen ideas, which is what made it in the final book. And everything else is like kind of bonus material on the website. So it's still available. But the response to that book is just so far beyond my wildest expectations before we published it. It's translated into 40 languages, sold hundreds of thousands of copies. Like it's reached every corner of the world by now. And millions of people have read the free version online. It's huge. And that has been a huge inspiration for continuing on that and realizing that the, you know, the format and the medium, the people really responded to something that was that well curated, that sort of dense and rich with insight. The, this feeling that you're reading 10 years of knowledge distilled into a book rather than one idea that's been expanded to fill a book. You know, I love seeing highlights on every page and dog-eared, tattered, ratty, dirty copies because people have been carrying it around in their bag for two years and read it five times. And those are my favorite kinds of compliments or stories to hear about the book. It's just like 
I highlighted every page. I've read it four times. I've gifted it to 10 people. That's incredible. That's exactly what I wanted it to feel like for people. I want to hear how publishing the book and having it come out into the world has changed your life. I mean, it's had to have been life-changing. Yeah. I mean, it's the books have this incredible prestige associated with them in a way that I totally did not appreciate. And even though it seems obvious to me, all of the good ideas in that are Naval's, you know, but just having being known for a piece of work that people appreciate and resonate with just makes so many more conversations possible. And people are just excited to meet you and reach out and let you invest in their company or like want to hear what you have to say, want you to have, want you on their podcasts. Like uh, that's, I have a suspicion that's why I'm here. So yeah, it's a really interesting thing. And this start is where the story starts to overlap with Scribe. I used Scribe, which is a professional publisher, the first, the first professional publisher, the biggest and, and the best in my opinion. And Tucker Max is the founder of that company and really helped and encouraged and supported me and through that publishing because I, I didn't know how to publish a book. I'd never even approached it before. So I had a lot to learn about every little detail, technical and how the industry worked and the finances of all of it and the rights and the publishing process, book marketing and all this. And, and he was really, really helpful for me. And I mean, that book changed my life, not just sort of reputationally, but also creatively the process of seeing how something goes from idea through the maze to publication and then being received in the world, but also financially in part because I, by going through Scribe, kept all of the rights and all the royalties to that book. So I took all the financial risk to get it published, but I obtained, kept all of the financial upside, which is not the case with traditional publishing. And I'm not sure traditional publishers would have ever touched this book anyway. You know, They might've insisted on all kinds of different terms that didn't fit what we were trying to accomplish. They probably wouldn't have let us give it away for free online and reach, you know, another couple million people. Subscribe absolutely changed my life and the team and all the help there that they gave me to make that first book successful was, you know, I feel like I still still owe them a huge thank you for that. And I know there's a thousand other authors that they've done that for now too. Yeah, we'll get into Scribe here later, but I wanted to hear, you mentioned Poor Charlie's Almanac, and that's another one of my favorites. You know, it's always on my coffee table. It's like something I look at frequently. So tell me a little bit about, I know that that was an influence. What are some other books that had an influence on how you wrote and formatted Naval's book and Balaji's? Yeah, it's one of these classic, like you can see the dots in the rearview mirror, like once you understand the moment that you've arrived at. So I read a lot of a lot of Buffett and Munger books. I think Peter Bevelin's books are amazing. Seeking Wisdom, All I Want to Know is Where I'm Going to Die So I Don't Go There. The longest small word title ever. Principles by Ray Dalio, Zero to One, The Letters of Warren Buffett. And a lot of those are compilations, I guess, is, is kind of the subgenre that you would put them in. Like someone took all the value or the best quotes from Charlie and Warren's annual meetings and like stitched them together into this dialogue or Blake Masters taking notes from the class that Peter Thiel took at Stanford. That's actually what turned into Zero to One. And I remember reading Principles by Ray Dalio and he says in there, like, I wish more people wrote their version of principles when they retire. Like, here's all the big ideas of my life and what made me successful and what I think I figured out. And I was like, man, I wish that too. Who do I wish had written that? And the first person that came to mind for me was Naval. I think he's a unique success story. He's extremely, you know, I don't think he would say this, but I think extremely self-made. You know, he arrived as an Indian immigrant at like 10 years old, maybe younger, single parent household and turned into this incredible success, not just financially, but I think 
you know, emotionally, maybe spiritually, whatever you want to consider it. He's widely admired and respected. And I think there's, I don't know, there's, there's so much to be gained by studying some of those people who you admire in whole, right? Not just spiky people who are really good at one thing, but that's always why I've been drawn to Munger even I think more so than Buffett is just the holistic nature of his life and his approach and his thinking. And I think, you know, to me, Naval fits into that as well. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. You had mentioned the Shane Parrish interview that I've also listened to a ton of times. And the, the start of that interview is just Naval going through his Kindle, like talking about all the books that he's read or reading, or he's got an interesting way to read. Like, I think he's got a lot of books going on. If it doesn't interest him, he has got no problem stopping it and moving on. But I, I know I with the Balaji book and Naval, like one of the things I first go to, and I don't know if anyone else is like this, is the books they recommend. So, you know, I, I love that you've put those together, both the, the for Naval and Balaji. I wanted to hear like for both, if there were any, like, let's talk, start with Naval, but like, what are some of the books that he's got listed in the back that have made a big influence on you? Oh, interesting. So there's definitely a lot that I had 
already read that I was so, I don't know if relieved is the right word, but like gratified to see him recommend also. It just gives me the sense that like my curriculum so far had been like on point. It's like, okay, if, if we share these books in common and Porch Always Almanac was definitely one of them, his whole, all the kind of like mental model reading was stuff that I had at least in large part done and appreciated and enjoyed some of the business stories or biographies that he recommended where I was not, I had no experience really on like the philosophy or spiritual side of what he had recommended. And I think that's a really interesting, I still am not honestly not super deep in those things. You know, he's, he was 10 years in by the time he's making these recommendations, maybe more. I have picked up some of the fiction that he recommended, like great taste in sort of really high concept science fiction. Ted Chang's Exhalation was an amazing book that I read on his recommendation. The Egg is a short story by Andy Weir that I reread maybe once a quarter and it blows my mind every single time. I find it to be, I don't know, the most beautiful thing you can read in 10 minutes. It's incredible. So he's pushed me kind of in a lot of directions there. I think he and he and Balaji both recommend The Sovereign Individual, which I have read a good chunk of. Yeah. And the, just the basics. I mean, Naval gives us like permission to go reread the basics of physics and math kind of constantly, which is a thing I think people tend to feel like, oh, I need to read the newest thing or the most the most complex version of what I can grok. And he's like, no, man, I've, I've gone back and read, you know, Richard Feynman's six easy pieces like constantly. Like you, can, you can't re-remind yourself of the basics too often. And he's now, he's done some great interviews with David Deutsch about the beginning of infinity and breaking down just the theory of knowledge generally all of david deutsch's work and those are great conversations some interviews with brett hall who's the guy who runs the talk casts you can spend a long time unpacking those and i'm still in early innings of those but trying to wrap my head around that because i do think those are very important ideas and the more we can compress and share those with people i think you know the more people are going to understand what sort of understanding and actions have positive impacts on the future. And that's, you know, that's, that's an important seed to plant. So you broke down Naval's book into wealth and happiness, basically. And one of the things I was, I just was, before the interview started, I was kind of rereading my dirty copy of Naval's book here. <laughs> and there's one point where he talks about like desire being in the way of happiness. And I wanted to kind of dive into that idea a little bit because we're taught like we need to have goals. And Balaji, even like in his book, talks about the importance of having goals. And I think, you know, there's desire behind any goal. So I kind of wanted to get your thought on that, that desire is in Naval's thought process in the way of happiness or it blocks happiness to some degree. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's a little bit of a nuanced thing. I mean, the, the foundational idea is a Buddhist is a Buddhist idea, right? And what Naval suggests is that there's really a gradient of how many desires you allow into your life and how many you choose to pursue, right? The, the monk approach is like eliminate all desires and that extreme version of happiness. There's another, the other extreme is have every desire and chase all of them all at once. That is unlikely to lead to happiness because there's, it's just so easy to add desires, especially in this day and age. It occurs to me, like having read that now, that Instagram is basically the most perfect desire generation engine that you could possibly invent if you set out to create a desire generation engine. So I deleted that from my phone immediately. So the question you ask yourself is like, for any given desire, do you really want to let it into your mind, into your heart? Are you willing to be unhappy until you achieve this desire? 
And that the answer can be yes for any that you choose. Just be very deliberate about which you choose. Maybe don't pick more than one at a time, maybe two, because you know they have a really high cost. And once you identify that, you can start to feel it and you can start to be better about letting go of desires that don't suit you or that are just obviously not going to come to fruition in the near term. The other hack, which is, I don't know if I've ever heard him articulate it this way, but I think, you know, people like Jerry Seinfeld or Kobe Bryant, some of the greats is like, I transformed my desire for long-term greatness into a desire to do the work every day. And so, you know, Jerry Seinfeld is like, if he writes a joke every day, he's happy. Like he's constantly working towards that, but knows it's a short feedback loop to happiness, to desire creating happiness. But for any given desire, just choosing are you willing to, is it easier to let go of this desire or easier to attain it and being willing to make that trade-off knowing what it costs? To me, it seems like Naval is more and more getting into kind of like the philosopher role in many ways. And certainly wealth is important and it provides a lot of optionality, but correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't he kind of say like, here's the path to wealth. It's not going to do it for you, but like you probably won't listen. (laughs) So here's the path. Is that accurate to say? I think the last tweet of the famous tweet storm was when you're wealthy, you'll realize wealth wasn't really what you wanted, but that's for another day. Right. So let's go into that. What what does he mean by that? I think the more that's a little it's a quip that is, I think, meant to like leave you bleeding a little bit. But the more pertinent idea, I think, is or the more useful is the money only solves your money problems. Like, by all means, go get rich. Right. Like. It's, you know, Naval says it's something along the lines of like, it's easier to just achieve your material desires than to try to eliminate them in the modern world. And for some people, some of the time, which it goes back to the, which desires do you want to choose? But money only solves your money problems. Like you might work for 30 years to get rich, reach some arbitrary number that you decided is what rich means, and then find out that money does solve some of your problems, but it's maybe 20% of them. It's not going to make you fit. It's not going to make you happy. It's not going to give you internal peace. It's not going to give you good relationships. If you're really deliberate with how you use it and you already sort of built the skill of chasing those other paths to happiness or solving those other problems in your life, like money can be a lever to it. You can hire a personal chef, you can hire a personal trainer, but nobody can make you fit. Nobody can therapy you into having a great relationship with your spouse or your kids, no matter how much money you spend on it. So you do have to also address those problems directly in ways that money is never going to be able to achieve. So I I think finding that balance in your life and remembering that there are problems outside of money problems and tackling those with the tools that they deserve. I heard you talk a little bit about the process of writing the Vols book. And it sounded like you just put everything into a Google doc. And I mean, it was a long process. I wanted to hear if like that process stayed the same with the Balaji book, what did it become easier to write the second book? Can you talk a little bit about the second book with Balaji and, and the process? Yeah, it's something that I think the tools are not glamorous. I will say that up front. Like it's, it doesn't take anything more than Google Docs to write a great book. The second book was really, I feel like I'm better now at the craft of curating and the craft of stitching these things together. I know more what the work feels like. And there were certainly less what I'll call creative doldrums or like difficult crossroads along the way. Like 
the first book, I had no idea what the finished product would look or feel like, even the, the scale it should be. There was times when I wasn't even sure it was going to be a book. And so this setting off on the second book and having like, I understand this person, you know, and I understand sort of how the finished product is going to feel and a little more about what it feels like to walk the maze along the way. There's still a lot of uncertainty around what's the final structure going to be? What are the big ideas that will emerge? And it's a very organic process of consuming absolutely everything, trying to organize it, collecting the pieces, sort of shifting them around. And the best analogy is, is doing a jigsaw puzzle to me. Like you have to collect the pieces, you have to craft them, you have to organize them, and you have to experiment in different sort of formats to see what things come together, have early peer readers sort of give you input, sand and polish and sand and polish all the different things so that it reads very consistently and ideas flow into each other and naturally answer the question that emerges in your head. Like, I think that's where you hear that people are like, oh my God, I read this in one day. Like, I did not put it down. You're like, that's awesome. And to me, that feels like we succeeded in creating a really strong through line of idea and idea question answer, idea question answer for the reader. And hopefully a lot of that sticks. But yeah, it was a really... I feel like I leveled up and did my job better in this book, for sure. You know, his, his biology is different than Naval. The ideas are different. The audience will probably overlap, but not fully. This book airs much more on the side of entrepreneurs, technologists, builders. It's a little more of a like a handbook to like go get out there, you know, get to work and a little less philosophical. But I think they go together really well. And I actually think that this book answers a lot more of the tactical uncertainty people might have had emerging from the Almanac of Naval of like, I understand that leverage is important. I understand I need to build specific knowledge. I know, you know, I want to end up with equity in a business in order to become wealthy. Okay, what direction do I head now? <laughs> and this is a little, there's very tactical stuff in here about finding new platforms, thinking about the technologies that are going to emerge, ideating for new companies and validating them with early customers and seeing which markets are going to emerge into being the biggest and where the opportunities arise in your industry or for your business. I hope that some of the stories from this turn into people being like, I applied this, I started a company, it is successful, you know, here we go. I wanted to take a step back a little bit. And for our listeners that just aren't familiar with Balaji yet, how did you get intrigued by him? What was it about his ideas that like, you know, you decided to write your second book about his ideas and a little bit about his story as a person? Sure. Yeah. He's somebody I've been following for a long time as well. He's become very well known in Silicon Valley and sort of the, I don't know, the tech frontier tech people in general. He's early to crypto. He's actually was the CTO of Coinbase for a while because a company that he founded even before that was acquired by Coinbase. He was a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And before that, he was the co-founder of a genomics, clinical genomics company because he's got a for the exact degree, like a chemistry, master's in chemistry and a PhD in, I think, computational biology from Stanford. So he, he has had like, you know, was in biotech, then VC, then crypto. And he's a, you know, he's an investor. He's a futurist. He's a writer. He's done a lot of different things over the years. And he's very much a, very much a polymath, right? Investor in hundreds of companies. He was, I think, became much more widely followed for being one of the first people to kind of see what was emerging in the beginning of the COVID pandemic and being like, guys, like we, we got a problem here. Like, look at these exponential curves. I know the chemistry of these viruses and how they work. Like we, we've got a real problem on our hands. Certainly early investor in cryptocurrency and a big believer in sort of making space for 
technology to flourish and for allowing technology to drive progress forward, which is a lot of where the idea is. You know, he wrote The Network State, which became a bestseller. And that's really the driving force behind a lot of his work is just like, how can we use technology to make the future better? And how can we change the structure of our politics and our institutions to enable that? Because we've lost a lot of what made today great has changed. And what was a tailwind has become a headwind, I think, in a lot of cases. I want to dive into a little bit more just about Balaji as a person. You've done hours and hours and hours of study of him and his writings. Talk to me just about some, just a few ways that he like lives, thinks, acts differently than the average guy because he's a different class of human being. (laughs) Yeah. And people are like, it's easy to get intimidated. I think like I've heard that a number of times of like people have trouble like bringing him down to earth or applying what he says or following the thought pattern. And yeah, I mean, he is like keyed up. He talks fast. He has deep, obscure references. He often like explains something in order to explain something, which like loses a lot of people. But I think at the core of it, he's a really, really smart guy. You can see that through his entire career. He's incredibly high horsepower and he spends a lot more of his mental energy extrapolating than distilling. You know, that's something I noticed, like working with Naval, he's got these killer, like, you know, four to 10 word things that are so memorable that just stick with you forever. Right. And Balaji has some hooks like that for sure. But he spends so much more time explaining the second, third, fourth order effects of his ideas or a problem that we see. And his ideas cover a really wide swath of modernity and spends a lot more time on contemporary issues. And to me, what I hope this book does is sort of do the distillation work, is show the most fundamental key ideas, the most applicable, the most evergreen ideas that that Balaji has shared and give you the seeds of his worldview, right? Like what Mark Andreessen says of Balaji, which I think is a really interesting, like fair critique or uh, context, I guess, to provide is like when Balaji's wrong, it's because he over-extrapolates. Almost everybody on earth, when they're wrong, it's because they under-extrapolate. Apology is somebody who takes an idea to 11, even though maybe reality only takes it to a five or a six. But through that lens, it's really interesting just to see how he thinks, see where the world could go. And maybe he'll arrive at a different conclusion and maybe you'll stop extrapolating at four. But without seeing him take it to 11, you might not have made it past a two, right? So just seeing somebody who spends so much time thinking so far into the future about all the different crazy possibilities, I think is just a really helpful, interesting mental exercise. And it's helped me see podcasting differently, even like some of the basics of that. You you start to just pattern match once he gives you some of these mental models and stories and you apply them in your own world. And maybe it'll help you see around a corner or two. So you mentioned the podcast. How has it changed how you think about your podcast, Smart Friends? You've interviewed Balaji. He seems, I know I would be massively intimidated by interviewing him. I noticed that he'll ask you questions like, have you heard about whatever he's talking about? And it's like, nope, I haven't actually. Yeah. yeah, I don't think he's expecting you to say yes, you know, for most of the French Revolutionary War specific battle. Well, it's the perfect metaphor for this thing that I need to explain. And he's like that in in conversation, too. Like, you know, we've gotten to talk sort of offline and what you hear on a podcast is exactly what you get in real life. And I think he's got a real gift for and partly where those references come from is he's a deep student of history. You know, you mentioned the book recommendations and this book, just like Naval, the whole last chapter is book recommendations that show you kind of the foundation of his worldview and a huge part of that list of maybe the biggest piece of it is history. And so Balaji's read a lot of history, which I think is a really good 
it's a good inoculation against sitting here in the present and thinking that the present or the near future is going to be just like the recent past, right? And when you're a student of history to the degree that biology is, you're like, man, all of these people at all of these different turning points of history woke up on Tuesday and were like, yep, today will be just like yesterday. And one day they were just so wrong and a revolution happened, you know, an archduke was assassinated, like a pandemic started, crazy things happen all the time. The government started repossessing assets or there was a coup or the history is just full of these crazy, unpredictable things that there are patterns to. And you know, a, a fair kind of response to biology is like, oh, well, there's doom and gloom. He's just predicting different disasters. It's like, yeah, because he's studied history and seen how often different circumstances have led to crazy outcomes. And he is often right about the risks and assessing them. And these are all very complex systems. It's really difficult to have any specific prediction turn out to be true. But I think it's a helpful lens to have on the world to see all of the different setups and all the different outcomes that have happened throughout history and just get a little more appreciation for the breadth of consequences that different actions or different scenarios could put forth. You know, obviously, I haven't read all of the history that, that he recommends in there. He's you know decades ahead of my reading list. But even if you just pick a few or read synopsis, go, you know, go read the Wikipedia page of the thing that the book is about, you'll start to see, I think, a little more of what he sees in the world for better or worse, and maybe be a little bit more prepared for your life, your business, your future. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Yeah, so I was fortunate enough you sent me an advanced copy of the book, so I got to spend some time with it. So thanks for doing that. I really enjoyed it. Like the last week or so, I've been spending a lot of time with it. So you broke the book down into three parts. The first one's on technology. Second one is on truth. And then the third part, which is was my favorite, was about building the future, building a company, building a even set a, a new country <laughs> or a nonprofit. Or, but I wanted to touch on just some big ideas in each section. And the one that stood out to me in the first part was, transhumanism. And I hear him talk about transhumanism a lot. Explain to me what that is, because I'm not sure I exactly understand it, but it's an important concept to him. It's an important concept to him. And I think his the definition that's in there is very simple. Transhumanism is self-improvement with technology. And in that sense, in that sense, so the, the transhumanism of the past would be like boats, planes, writing, computers, bikes, learning to ride horses, like the entire tech tree could be seen as transhumanism of the past. What are things that we can use that are more than like just the hands that we were given as, you know, evolved monkeys to increase our capabilities, right? And people, I think today, you know, you hear transhumanism and people have this sense that like, which is bizarre. It it is absolutely bizarre when you see the full evolution of time, but they have this sense that like wherever they were born is the correct amount of technology to have and that any new technology is scary and unnatural and unsafe and insane and should be illegal. But thank God we have planes. Thank God we have vaccines. Thank God we have open heart surgery. Thank God we have air conditioning. So all of these transhumanism is just self-improvement with technology. And I think that's a really helpful it's a helpful way to see it. There are some, you know, you know, he's got a long list of them in there, sort of near-term opportunities for really crazy capabilities to get at it, right? Externalized memory in our, in our computers now. We could have AI partners. We could have robotic help. We can have self-driving cars. And people might be excited or fearful about any set of those, but you can't deny that they are adding to the set of human capabilities pretty quickly. He talked about having a dashboard Instead of like looking at your phone right off the bat, you know, scrolling through Twitter, looking at your whatever, your notifications, he talked about having a dashboard that would monitor your like health, wealth, truth. Those are like the, I think the three aspects that he said were most important, right? Like first pursue truth, then health, then wealth. We often get that backwards. So talk to me a little bit about the dashboard idea. Yeah, I think the whole middle section truth is really an interesting sort of weave between the different types of truth that there are, like fundamental physical truth, social consensus truth, economic truth, and how the media that we are used to using, whether it's traditional media or social media, tends to distort that truth and make it more difficult for us to find fundamental reality. And this is 
that's the role of media. That's its job. But it's grown to take over a huge percentage of our lives. And there are people who live in this absolutely unreal world created for them by, by social media and how they choose to interact with it. And his point, I think, is rather than open you know, an algorithmically derived set of the most triggering things that, you know, engagement bait that you can find or that the algorithm has found for you every morning that are someone else's priorities. Perhaps the most important thing to do is wake up and look at, you know, for me, it's like my whoop, right? It's the resting heart rate variability, basically how healthy, how good were my habits yesterday? How well rested am I? How ready am I for the work that I have to do today? Where are my personal finances at? Where's my budget? Which not everybody looks at daily, but are you tending to the things that are in your house, in your yard? Are your relationships strong would be something that if you could quantify in some sense, and there was like a little red alert going off, it's like, hey, yeah, you worked pretty hard yesterday. Like, how's your spouse feeling? Like, how many minutes did you talk to them yesterday? Are your true priorities reflected in how you're using your time both yesterday and your plan for today? I think that's the dashboard that you know, you, you can imagine, you could draw it out on paper, like, what do I wish I had a report on every morning? And a lot of that's yet to be built, but the technology for a lot of it could be there. And just replacing maybe a bad habit with a good one will trigger some different changes in how you use your time. Yeah. So the third section is building the future. I think that was your favorite section as well. Yeah. I think I, think I said in my intro, the first section is the most important, but the third is my favorite. Yeah. So let's go into some of the bigger ideas in the third section, which was how to build the future. He's got a lot of great ideas in there about just building a company that can be applied to almost anything. Yeah. Building a country. That's really the, the, the foundation of the network. State. I assume that's the ultimate goal of most people in real estate, right? Is like, go start their own country, own the whole thing, triple net land. So the building the future section is broken up into three sections, which is like sort of the internal game of the mindset and how to think and how to prioritize and determining what the best opportunity is for you. And then founding, which is just, you know, every verb from starting your research all the way through sort of executing and surviving as a company and enshrining that legacy. There's a lot of messy stuff in between. And Balaji's got, I think, a really uniquely rigorous, quantitative, like strict approach basically to navigating that messy piece. And it's, you know, I think he's been a huge, he's invested in hundreds of startups, many of which have become incredibly successful. He has started a few of them himself and is very much an in the trenches kind of founder. So I think there's a lot to be gained from that. And actually, I have sent those chapters to a lot of founders that we invest in or friends even who are just starting companies like, hey, this is the clearest framework I've seen for how to go from zero customers to a bunch of pre customers pre-committed to features you have not yet built with a prioritized list of features and revenue like expectations attached, which is a really helpful framework to have when you're trying to go from zero to one. And he taught a course. A lot of that material is from a course that he taught at Stanford for founders and technical founders. That like I think a quarter million people took that course online. It's it's an open online course. And some of the technical information is outdated now, but some of the f- ideas are still really key. And I compiled all those into the course notes in a PDF. If you want the like full context version, that's on the website, uh, the book website, biologyanthology.com. If you want to go deeply into that, but I hope that this is sort of the successor to zero to one in terms of like very tactical builders manual. Like that's what this section is really meant to be. So if you, if you like zero to one, I think this will hit the spot. I agree. And the book is coming out when next October, October 24th. That's great. Yeah. Hopefully it's already out by the time you're hearing this. It should be. So I'm excited to get a physical copy. I love 
physical copies of books. So I'll definitely be getting one. One of the things that I wanted to kind of touch on is Balaji's Bitcoin bet. He's really well known for that. Talk to me a little bit about the impetus for that bet for our listeners that aren't familiar with it, a little bit of background on why he made the bet and the specifics of it. Yeah, this is some of this is definitely over my pay grade, but I will do my best. So this gets to some of the contemporary issues that like Balaji gets involved in. And his view is that we have dangerous levels of inflation sort of coming to the US and impending financial crisis of some sort. Like his view is that the Fed intentionally or unintentionally has like due to the rate changes has really caused trouble for the banks and caused the bankruptcy, you know, the failure of some of these banks like SVB and is sort of hiding even more inflation in some of these operations. So the the Bitcoin bet in his view also is another part of the preface is that Bitcoin is the safe haven for investors to move in a high inflation environment. If USD is the reserve currency currently, which it is, and it's entering this crazy inflation state, which his theory is that it is, then the safe place for your currency is Bitcoin. And that that's preferable to, you know, moving to any other foreign reserve currency. So it is the bet that he made was that Bitcoin would go to a million in 90 days, which of course it didn't, but it was an incredible publicity stunt. I don't know if he would use those words. It got a lot of attention, certainly. And the narrative that he shared around it was like, I burned a million to show you they're printing trillions and to bring attention to the kind of impending crisis. And he's released a lot more nuanced information around that, that if this is something you're interested in, I encourage you to go kind of dig into. There's a lot on his Twitter. He's released long podcasts about it. There's a lot of sort of macroeconomic and deep financial like analysis and information that goes into it. I'm not an expert in any of those fields, so I'm not the correct person to help you parse it, but it's an interesting rabbit hole to go down if that's uh, if that's of interest to you. Yeah, it is actually to me. It is a deep rabbit hole and one I've actually gone down myself. So we've got a podcast that I mentioned, Bitcoin Fundamentals, that's great. People can listen to that as well. To It's a controversial thing. Yeah, it's a, one of those where every every opinion is interesting in its own way and you got to kind of collect all the extremes and figure out where you where your worldview fits among there. And that is something Bology said is like you know here's the different in the nuanced communication which is most headlines don't report, but if you go read his stuff it's like you know here's here's my expectation of the different possible scenarios and here's my probability weighting of each of them and here's what I would do, you know, as a retail investor if you think each of if whatever you think is the most probable thing, like here's a set of actions you might take to protect yourself or your business. Yeah, it's an interesting rabbit hole to go down, especially for people whose businesses are largely or are heavily impacted by interest rates, Fed activities, banking collapse, that kind of stuff. Yeah, we won't go any further into that. I, we that could do a whole show on that. But I want to go into uh, Scribe and you've got this new announcement. You've manifested your dream job, you tweeted. So talk to me about your next chapter, what you're up to as CEO of at Scribe Media and how it came about. Yeah, I'll do my best in brief because it's, you know, we could do a whole podcast on that probably. The publisher that I used to publish my first and, and the Bology book actually that I owe a huge debt of gratitude to went through some financial challenges related to previous leadership and underwent a sale process. And I, as an adoring customer of theirs and a fan of all the humans who I've worked with there, did my best to go support them and make sure that that could remain a stable thing. And I have some friends, you know, we mentioned 
who worked in permanent equity and private equity and long-term holding companies. And so I just took this opportunity to around to a few of them and Sieva and Xavier at Enduring Ventures, got excited about the business, worked a lot with the bank to figure out how this was going to unfold and ended up sort of in some form or fashion that is not my expertise, like closing on some of those assets and hiring the team and needed somebody to run it. And I talked with them a lot through the process. They knew that I was a happy customer and had some some experience in this industry and some ideas about how to carry it forward and gave me a number of calls. And so over a few weeks, we, we talked about it and got excited about the opportunity. So I joined a few weeks ago. Yeah. New to the company, new to the publishing industry, but a very excited to kind of cross the line from author and moving into CEO this this professional publisher. I mean, the professional publisher, honestly, like they are very well known and respected in the industry. And I think like fertile ground for the next kind of the biggest new age publishing company out there. I see that the world has changed around traditional publishing, that the kind of offer that Scribe provides authors, the chance to own their full financial upside, all their creative rights and decisions and copyrights makes so much sense in a world of people who own their own audience in the world of Amazon being where most books are bought and sold. It's a really interesting shift in an industry that I feel like has not yet fully, fully adjusted. And I'm excited to be, I'm excited to be digging in. So Eric, this has been really great. I've really appreciated your time today. I hope people dive into both the Naval book and the Balaji book for people who want to find out more about you, find out about the books. What's the best way for them to learn about you, get in touch with you, that kind of thing. Yeah. Thank you so much for the kind words. I'm really, I love to hear that these books have had an impact on people's lives. All of my projects can be found at ejorgensen.com. That's kind of the beginning of everything. And you can go any direction from there, the podcast, the fun, the books, the blog. And I'm on Twitter all the time, arguably too much. So if you're, if you're on Twitter, come find me. Let's have a chat. Awesome. Eric, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate having you and uh, best of luck with the Balaji book. Thank you. Appreciate you very much. All right. Take care. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.